Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. This is one of those rare Wednesdays where it's just possible the really important thing happened on Tuesday night and we're going to try and work out what it means. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. So today it is just me and Helen. I was saying beforehand, I don't know how it'll be for anyone else, but for me, this is therapy. Uh, Helen Thompson is Professor of Political Economy here in Cambridge and um, has been on this podcast just about as much as I have. And we've been talking about this for a long time. And we haven't got any plans for this conversation. It's like therapy. We're going to see where it goes. But I think I know where we might start. Last night, Theresa May gave a three-minute statement, which may or may not be one of the most consequential things to happen in British politics for a long time, in which effectively she changed strategy. She's been trying to get her withdrawal agreement through with the support of the Brexiteers in her party and the DUP that has not worked and now she's going to try and get it through with support from the Labour Party either the leadership or if that doesn't work from Labour MPs I think there's some political logic to it which we'll come on to but there seems to me to be one fundamental flaw here so she said in her speech last night which I thought she delivered with quite a lot of conviction that for this to work, her withdrawal agreement has to pass. And then she will try and agree with Jeremy Corbyn or with through indicative votes in the Commons, some shared understanding of the future relationship, which will probably be, for want of a better phrase, a softer version of Brexit. It may involve a customs union. Yet, a couple of weeks ago, she said she now understands that if her withdrawal agreement passes, it will be for someone else to negotiate the next stage. So the problem is those things can't both be true. She can't both go to Jeremy Corbyn and say, pass my withdrawal agreement and we will agree something for the future. And also say, if my withdrawal agreement passes, someone else, another prime minister on the conservative side, will do the next stage. So it must be that what she said a couple of weeks ago no longer applies. But then that means that she's intending to remain as prime minister, which also seems impossible. QED, this isn't going to work. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty difficult to see how it works, not least because it became clear in the arguments, accepting that some of these arguments are really entirely tactical, that various Labour MPs, including effectively Corbyn himself, at least by implication when making last week, was that her preemptive resignation had changed things such that it made it more difficult for Labour MPs now to back because the they, they couldn't agreement. trust her successor they, to honour whatever she... Could. Now, this is entirely spurious argument at one level because you can't simultaneously say that you're not going to vote for the withdrawal agreement when Theresa May is Prime Minister and then say you're not going to vote for the withdrawal agreement when she says she's not going to be Prime Minister because you're now worried about who's going to come next. So if you really believe that, you would have backed it the first time or the, the second time. But I think that it is a... A real fear on the Labour side that is a problem and I think that underneath that fear is something that actually runs really very very deep and gets to the heart in some sense of why we are where we are 
and that is, is for a long time since the late 80s, is that significant sections of the Labour Party have seen the EU as something that fundamentally constrains the Conservative Party. And the part of the Conservative Party they fundamentally want constrained is what they see as the right wing of the Conservative Party, which now goes under the name of the ERG, though I think that actually oversimplifies things. So once you've got something that's sort of 30 years established, if you like, in Labour's psyche, crashing into this, in some sense now, national emergency with lots of tactical short-term political decisions for the Labour Party to make at the same time, it's pretty difficult to see what the way out of that is. So just to be clear, your sense of it is that the fear on the Labour side, which must be real, which is whatever is agreed in the next, say, week, and the condition for Theresa May, she was absolutely clear last night, in some respects, not that much has changed, which is she wants to leave office with the withdrawal agreement having passed. And frankly, what happens next is not for her. She knows that now. So she gets her withdrawal agreement passed with Labour support. Their fear is they've got no control over themselves over what happens next, absent a general election. And after all, there are two constituencies here which couldn't be more diametrically opposed. Labour MPs and the Labour leadership on the one side who will need to agree something with Theresa May and the electorate, the Tory party membership who will choose the next Prime Minister. Now, in British politics, those are the two opposite ends of the spectrum. And yet somehow, if May agrees something with Corbyn, whatever that agreement is, will sooner or later collide with the reality of a choice being made by Conservative members about the next leader who will then do the negotiations, unless there's an election, which I still think we shouldn't rule out. Yeah, I think that though the other convocation in all this is is that there is an element of spuriousness about some of this debate about the political declaration as well. Because for those people who say that they want a customs union, not common market too, for those people who say they want a customs union written into the political declaration... Well, that is already the strong structural bias that the combination of the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration has through the backstop. This, in one sense, makes it you know like difficult for those ERG members who've swallowed voting for the withdrawal agreement on the third meaningful vote, because if a customs union is added to the political declaration, it's not really changing very much. It's putting a different presentation on things. But their fear of a customs union being permanent is precisely the reason why they've been so reluctant to vote for the withdrawal agreement in the first place. So I think that there's a real risk on the Conservative side, though, that changing, if you like, the presentation again actually just peels away some people from the ERG who voted for it last time, even if they're actually in substance, assuming for a moment it would be a customs union that went into the political declaration, that nothing really is changing. So a couple of things. I'm assuming that if this plan is to work, and it may well not work, it would be majority Labour support that gets it over the line, that she has presumably forfeited at least 100, if not more, Conservative MPs. I mean, it's going to go back to the people who voted no confidence in her, those 117 or whatever. But she thinks that with either indicative vote support or Labour leadership support, she can get enough Labour people to sign up for this. But doesn't it still depend on who is Prime Minister? Whatever's in the political declaration, if you say we're going to have a customs union, there's no such thing as the customs union, a customs union, and this is our intention for the future. But what that means depends on the government of the day, the new Prime Minister and the new Cabinet, interpreting it, negotiating it, agreeing various implications of it. Nothing is fixed now. It is and it isn't. This is where we've got 
the whole thing's got into a mess because the the EU's position, which comes from you know Article 50, has been that the withdrawal agreement is about the past and the political declaration is about the future. But as soon as they accepted the Irish position on the backstop, that entirely muddled up that distinction because the backstop commits to something about the future. So the future is not entirely open. Right, but insofar as it's not open, it's because of what's in the withdrawal agreement. But but then in terms of beyond that, that has to be a matter of contested domestic politics. I mean, that is what leaving the European Union means, that you have domestic contested politics about things that weren't contested previously. And I think that's where we get into this almost like psychological problem that the Labour Party is in because of the fact that it has conceived EU membership, or enough of the party anyway, has conceived EU membership for so long in these essentially de facto constitutional terms as something that acts as a constraint against the Conservative Party. But that is what leaving the European Union means. So if the logic of Labour's position is is that they can't tolerate the idea that a future Conservative government will do certain things, including negotiating future trade agreements if the backstop is bypassed or changing regulation, diverging from the EU in significant ways on regulatory matters, whether that be the environmental labour standards, the only logic of Labour's position then becomes revoked. But it's very clear that that produces a massive problem for the Labour Party's leadership to commit itself to that position. So in that sense, they're trapped. And I think the, the, the one thing that probably does shift a little bit in terms of what Theresa May did last night is, is it's, I think it is an attempt to try to put Labour in a position where it's more difficult for them to just like run around in circles round the trap, the position that they're in, and they have to take a clearer stand than the leadership has been willing to do hitherto. So how might it go, Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party? I mean, part of the complication here is their number one priority is to bring down the government. So this might present another opportunity to do that. You know, a skillful and mischievous politician might well use this to further that aim. It's not clear whether Corbyn has that skill set or not. But assuming there is a relatively sincere negotiation here. Labour has its six tests. It's not going to get all of them, and some of them are quite fanciful, but there will have to be some concessions. But presumably, for this to be a meaningful negotiation, there also has to be a threat. And the threat has to be no deal still. I mean, if anything's going to discipline this in a very tight time frame, there's still got to be some residual belief that no deal is possible or else this isn't going to work. And I also took it from Theresa May's statement last night in which she said, we still believe we could make no deal work in the long run. I mean, so a lot of people have said by doing this, she's effectively finally taken three options down to two. But I don't think that she has. Well, not only has she not, she can't. Because whether we avoid no deal is no longer a matter of British politics. It's a matter first and foremost for the EU. And when she said in Parliament, I think on the 25th of March, no deal will not happen unless this parliament allows it. That was simply not true. No deal can happen because the EU can refuse an extension beyond the extension that it's already agreed. So it should be no deal will not happen if this parliament revokes Article 50, but everything else is contingent. Yeah, the only way that this parliament could stop no deal happening, or the two ways, it can pass the withdrawal agreement by the 12th of April, or it could revoke Article 50. So in these negotiations, if they are negotiations, that brute reality still holds. And so the Labour Party will need to 
I presume it's going to be hard to pin no deal on the Labour Party, but at least there's the beginnings of a shift here where it can be said to Labour MPs, or maybe this is in the next round of indicative votes, we've given you the opportunity to agree something. And if you don't, some of this is now on you. I think it is. And I think there is a certain truth in that because the the Labour Party has been willing to vote down a withdrawal agreement that the leadership and some significant faction of its MPs actually agree with. And actually, for those of them who want a customs union or Labour's version of a customs union plus close alignment with the single market, they have to pass the withdrawal agreement. And and that was what clearly what Theresa May was trying to do with the third vote of detach the voting, at least, on the political declaration from the withdrawal agreement. And I think that one of the contingencies that was there last week... A significant contingency was when the Speaker would not allow that amendment from Gareth Snell and Lisa Nandy, because that was basically providing some Labour justification for not necessarily the leadership, but a significant number of perhaps of Labour MPs to vote for that withdrawal agreement. And I think what was significant about what the Speaker did was that even though the government said that it would have accepted that amendment, that that wasn't sufficient because it didn't have any Labour ownership on it. So those very people who got exactly in substantive terms what they wanted from Theresa May, Gareth Snell and Lisa Nandy, still ended up voting against the withdrawal agreement. And I think trying to detach Labour from the... or enough Labour MPs actually from these positions of voting against things that they actually agree with is what she's now trying to get to. So the timetable is complicated, and it does still depend on the European Union agreeing to an extension. The implication of what Theresa May said last night was that, and I think this is clear from the leaks that have come out of the Cabinet, the only way she's prevented any resignations from her Cabinet, is the one thing they agreed on was no one wants the European elections to happen. So the 22nd of May is now the new cut-off point, although it's not clear how far back you have to go before that to get a guarantee that the European elections won't happen. So the, the timetable is really tight for this. When is the EU going to have to make its consequential decision? Because there's, again, still the risk, presumably, that someone there will say no to an extension, or at least there will be a lot of pressure to get more detail from the British government about what it's getting this extension for. And so, say the scenario is, Theresa May asks for an extension for another basically it'll be six weeks, because the Commons or she, in conjunction with the Labour leadership, have agreed that they will pass the withdrawal agreement because they have a shared understanding that the future relationship will include a customs union. But that's just a shared understanding, and it doesn't pin anything down because the government could fall, the Tory party could split, there could be a general election. Would that be enough, do you think? Would that be enough for Macron? I think it's very difficult to... uh make a judgment about what Macron's thinking on this is. The the decision they've got to make is the 10th of April, because that's when the European Council is. And I think the fact that this is taking place against the backdrop of the European Parliament elections is what makes this particularly difficult. Because at least we can say so far, whatever the calculations that... Macron or Merkel might make about whether it's in the long-term interest of the European Union to have the UK as a member of the the European Union is is that 
it's easy to see how you can just sort of take the cautious route in making that judgment, maybe even say, look, it's perhaps too soon to tell. But these European Parliament elections are a short-term constraint on what can happen. And the fact is, is that Brexit has got the potential to cause chaos in those European Parliament elections, both logistically in terms of whether they're happening or not, but also being an intrusive factor into the elections taking place in other EU member states. And Macron has invested a lot of his credibility in these European Parliament elections, perhaps in a way that was rather risky from his point of view, leaving even leaving um, Brexit aside. But he has. Now, you've got to balance that, if you obviously, against the fact that the Eurozone economy, or a number of Eurozone economies, you should say, are in, you know, like pretty severe difficulty. The Germans had yet more very poor economic data this week. The Italians are in trouble. The French have so far been relatively insulated, but not so far insulated that they can afford not to worry about the consequences of no deal. There's the Calais um, problem. That's a lot of different things to balance off from Macron's point of view. And that's always assuming that actually he's going to be able to persuade Merkel, assuming that he wanted to say no, to accept that. Because it seems to me there is, if I was on the European side, the thing that would really worry me is I think they have a strong incentive to fudge this a bit and allow an extension that avoids Britain taking part in the European election, so allow it to run till the 22nd of May, and say over the next week there is an agreement somehow that the withdrawal agreement will pass and there's a shared understanding of what might come after that. But then a lot of other legislation has to pass too for Britain to leave the European Union. And that shared understanding is very weak because it has no, it has nothing to hold it together. I mean, the only thing that holds things together in British politics is the government and confidence in the government in Parliament. And the cabinet is very fragilely placed. Theresa May's government is fragilely placed. We'll come on to the DUP in a second. The Labour Party has many splits. So even if for 10 days you can get a shared understanding, you know, that meaningful vote will pass. But it could unravel again in the interim. I mean, you could then get a sort of six-week period where Britain has to leave on the 22nd. And the basis on which Britain's leaving and the shared agreement that allows that to happen starts to fray. And then it contaminates everything. Absolutely. And and that, and that's why it's really quite difficult to see that anything actually has changed from where we were before Theresa May made her announcement. Because if we bring you know the DUP in, if we take them at their word, and a withdrawal agreement that passes with the backstop in is the end of supply and confidence. Yeah. So if I was Macron, I would need to have an account of what kind of steps will be taken to shore up the government but, subsequent but to the passing think, of the withdrawal agreement. I would need a sort of map of know, how we get I from, think that this is what the EU keep wanting, though. They keep saying they want clarity, they want a map. But the, the problem no, that they're not engaging with is, is our domestic politics cannot provide this. No, I agree. And domestic politics in general can't provide the kind of, this will happen, A will happen, then B will follow, then that, and sure. C will... No, C I, will no and I think they're mistaken. They keep saying, we want to know what people want. Yeah. What, what, what. But the key question is who, who, who. We can't even answer who, who, who. No, except, as I keep saying, I mean, the only actual certainty, which won't tell you who, but will tell you a process, is an election. Or as Philip Hammond apparently called it, and he's adopted this terminology, a democratic event. He called it in (laughs) Cabinet yesterday, that there will need to be a democratic event. It's just that it's pretty difficult, though, to say 
any confidence whatsoever what the outcome of that would be so it doesn't actually answer the who question and there would if you leave aside the, the fact of how difficult it is to call there still would be a reasonable possibility that we wouldn't be in pretty much the same position as we are now or some version just a some version of the same um, thing anyway. So to have any confidence in this process, it seems to me you have to have some confidence that Theresa May will remain Prime Minister, say, for at least six months. If you don't believe that, then you can work back from that and it can unravel very, very quickly for all the suspicions that you say. Is it possible that she... I mean, she's a remarkable politician in some ways, remarkably durable. Is it possible that she has actually potentially bought herself now the only way that the arrangement with Labour will work is they have to believe that this government continues and isn't replaced by a Boris Johnson government or even a Michael Gove government could she be Prime Minister through the rest of this year because if she couldn't this isn't going to work I must say I, I find that hard and and I do say and it, it's a point we've both made is reaching some agreement with Jeremy Corbyn about this involves the Labour leadership, because I think we could, should keep distinguishing between Labour actors here, the Labour leadership giving up on the primary way in which it has dealt with Brexit since the beginning, which is as an opportunity to try to take power. So you don't think the Labour could square that circle in their own mind and think there is a way that we can do this, as it were, soften Brexit, which will also probably lead quite quickly to a general election because... A big chunk of the, the Tory party aren't going to stomach it. But the problem is, is a significant chunk of the Labour parliamentary party isn't going to stomach it. There's a significant chunk of the members that aren't going to stomach it. And each time that we've seen, leaving the tactical question aside, some movement from the, the leadership in a let's have a softer version of Brexit, then the leadership looks like it gets yanked back to a much harder, at least second referendum, possibly stop Brexit. Position. I mean, you can see that from the whipping on the. Uh, anyway, so the whipping sometime last week. I'm not even. Gonna... <laughs> <laughs> that whipping. <laughs> Whereby you know, in the morning you had Barry Gardner on the Today programme saying that Labour wasn't a Remain party, and then by the evening you've got Labour whipping in favour of a second referendum. On I think it must have been one of the indicative votes. And then significant figures refusing to back that and allowing to remain yeah, in office. Absolutely. So is is that each time. Corbyn seems to move in the accept Brexit, try and influence the terms, leaving the tactics aside, he gets pulled back away from it again, and in usually very rapidly. So, so could one possible scenario that would attract Labour here be to go into these negotiations in semi-good faith, knowing that Theresa May has now probably broken with the DUP and the hardcore 2030 Brexiteers who she was maybe never going to win over anyway, and now you know, the Steve Baker faction are saying she's the worst thing since whatever. There's still a possibility of a no-confidence vote that would succeed, that you go into these things with good faith, but it breaks down. We're heading for no deal again. But that there are enough people now whose support are needed to keep this government afloat, who just feel completely like they've got nothing left to lose. And... This time next week, a no-confidence motion in this government might well pass. Well, I still think you've got the, the difficulty of what the TIG are going to do, what the Liberal Democrats are going to do. You've got Conservative MPs who are going to lose the whip if they vote with the Labour Party on a confidence vote. I think it will be 
more likely you would see a, a cabinet coup against her than than a than I mean, a yeah, the, the TIG but, thing is so weird. I mean, this to me is like I think I've said a lot, but I don't think our electoral system works. But you have a whatever you think of their position, you have a group of MPs who are trying to represent a significant portion of the population who are relatively unrepresented by the two main parties. Okay, they're not necessarily a huge number of people, but a good constituency of the population. And making a move to try and shake up British politics and maybe reconfigure it. The one thing they cannot allow is a general election because they'll all get wiped out. So they can't declare no confidence in the government. It's insane. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that whatever you think of them, that they should be so vulnerable to a democratic event, given that they are also speaking for a large number of people who aren't otherwise represented but in Parliament. Part, but part of the problem there is, is though, and this, I do think that this has been a, you know, had significant consequences for what has happened since June 2017, is, is that the most irreconcilable Remainers, the people who want to stop Brexit, piled in to vote for a Labour Party that was committed to not only leaving the European Union but committed to leaving the single market and leaving the customs union and did so knowing that Labour was appealing to Labour Leave voters saying that they would honour the referendum and that I think rather than voting for the party that did exist that represented their point of view the Liberal, which, Democrats. The Liberal Democrats they refused to do that and voted to try to change the Labour Party whilst the Labour Party was benefiting from from Labour Leave voters who believed Labour at its word that Labour would honour the referendum and a lot I think has a lot of our difficulties not all far from all of them obviously but quite a lot of our difficulties have followed from that but couldn't you say for those people that they weren't wrong in that had they voted for the Lib Dems because of our electoral system the Tories would have won a very large majority because it would have split the anti-Tory vote and then we would have got whatever Brexit follows from that by injecting effectively incoherence and chaos into the system they have made it more likely that the thing that they want which is either brexit not to happen or it to be really watered down will happen i'm not saying you can yeah, think about voters think, thinking in those terms though, but if they voted lib dem they would have got a that, big that tory is, majority that is possibly true but i think you also got to look at like where these where the votes are concentrated and where the where the seats are because the other thing that's true about 2017 is is the Liberal Democrats, because of their past experience with coalition and saying they wouldn't go into any coalition, basically threw their opportunity of being the power brokers away. So in circumstances in which the Liberal Democrats had been willing to go in a coalition and they had won lots of Remain voters, then that was actually in principle a way of actually forcing the Conservatives to do business with the Liberal Democrats. And that path was not taken by a combination of what people who wanted to stop Brexit voters did and the Liberal Democrats ruling out in advance any coalition. I mean, in that sense, the Liberal Democrats and their experience of the coalition government is a a significant part of why we ended up in a situation where in a hung parliament the only effective votes were available for support were from the DUP. So it's Tim Farron's fault, all of this, given that he he was the anti-coalition Lib Dem, who was also... I'm not saying it's. I'd, all, I'd forgotten about him. I'm not blaming Tim Farron. I'm just saying. Weird, is it, it I'm just saying is is that it was another of these contingencies that at a point in which you had a minority government over a huge the huge issue of the day that the Liberal Democrats decided in advance that they were not going to play with anybody. Talking politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So let's talk about the DEP. So I, at the weekend, I was in doing some events, literary festival events in Glasgow and then in Dublin. This is all anecdotal. Nothing here is representative. We'll come on to the SNP in a second. But the DEP, I was talking to someone in Ireland about this question that we've talked about a bit, which is how, how come the DUP are willing to risk a Corbyn government that's lower down on their worst-case scenarios than the backstop? And the explanation I was given, and again, who knows about people's psychology, is that hardwired into the DUP, the ultimate fear is of betrayal. So f- throughout their history, this fear that essentially they will be abandoned at some point by their friends in Westminster or by their purported allies. So it's Tory betrayal. Whereas a Corbyn government for them is just part of the back and forth of British politics. They sort of know how to deal with it. And after all, you can't be, I mean, this wasn't exactly how it was put to me, but you can't be betrayed by your enemies. <laughs> that won't be betrayal. It's lined up in front of them. They know how to deal with it. The fear is always that their friends will betray them. And the thing that happened that maybe prevented Theresa May's version of the withdrawal agreement going through on the third round was the DUP might have been wavering. And then they had meetings with people like Boris Johnson, the future prime ministers, and they didn't trust that they were serious about preserving the union. That for them, they looked at Johnson and maybe rightly saw him as a potential betrayer. And that for them is worse than a Corbyn government. I thought that was kind of plausible. Yeah, I think that what has become clear is that there is a hierarchy of what the DUP's concerns are. Um, I think that the union is so far above any other consideration at the the top of the hierarchy. But you say that's become clear, but no, on this but account, that's always no, been no. True but what I mean is, is it always was true, but it's become explicit, and that that's why I think it was actually really revealing when Arlene Foster was willing to say that out loud, because they have presented themselves until that point, the DUP, as very strongly committed to Brexit. And in that Arlene Foster interview, by the time she got to saying that the union comes before Brexit, you could be forgiven for thinking that Brexit didn't really feature very much at all. And indeed, there was some talk at some point of them being willing to support some of the options in the indicative votes. In the end, they voted against everything. And I think, you know, that is a fault line that has been there since the beginning, but is is now coming to the open. And it comes from a, a real fear, clearly, on the on the DUP's part. But I think it also comes with something that they haven't really faced, and that is is that the Union of Great Britain and Northern Ireland does depend also on the consent of the Great Britain part of the Union, and not just the Protestant community in Northern Ireland part of the Union, leaving aside the question of whether demographics change in a direction that produce a Catholic majority in um, Northern Ireland. And there is only so far, I think, that they can pursue this, we are committed to the Union above any other consideration whatsoever, without actually breaking consent to the Union of Great Britain and Northern Ireland within Britain. And why would they, so if you put that betrayal narrative to one side, another possible threat to the Union presumably would be a Labour government that itself has a very different understanding 
of the relationship with the island of Ireland. Are they right to think that that's just um, part of the ebb and flow of British politics? I mean, there have been Labour governments in the past that have had, although nothing like this, but a more ambivalent relationship or a less traditional unionist conception than the Conservative Party, and they've seen them off. Are they right to believe that, as it were, Corbyn is within the bounds of what they're used to, whereas the backstop takes them into new territory? Because you could say it's the other way around, because there would never have been a government like a a Corbyn-led Labour government. I think that if you say, you know, is there any possibility of even a majority Corbyn government acting to try to bring about a united Ireland within a one-term parliament, I think. No. no. So in that sense... <coughs> they're right to make that They're judgment. right. I think, though, that ending up seeming to be more OK with a, a Corbyn government, given Corbyn's and McDonald's history with the IRA, than being keen on a Conservative government does pose some political problems for the DUP back to this issue of the consent of the rest of the union to this ongoing union. I mean, I think... So how would the loss of consent manifest itself? Well, I think it goes back in some sense to this whole bigger question of the UK as a a multinational state. And I think one way we can think about, like, what has happened since the, you know, the late 90s and asymmetrical devolution is, is that this growing political sense of English nationhood that was left out of the devolution settlement in 1999 kind of like floated around our politics looking for some way to manifest itself because it had no capacity for institutional expression in the constitutional settlement. You can see it, I think, at work in the 2015 general election in producing the Conservative majority. You can see it manifested in and the referendum vote is obviously not the only thing that's going on in the referendum vote because of the situation with Wales. And if we now end up in a, end up in a position where essentially Brexit is thwarted because of the Northern Irish question, we're still left with this English nationhood thing floating around without institutional expression in our politics. And it's not difficult to see how it becomes, well, why are we carrying on with this union if it all these different things become a veto on anything that the majority of English voters want to do. The other story that came out of the cabinet yesterday was, again, not unanimity, but there was a large majority of members of the cabinet who believed that the biggest problem with no deal was that it would mean direct rule. rule in Northern, yeah. And Andrea Leadsom apparently said, yeah, but we could call it something other than direct rule, and that would be a way around that problem. And she didn't persuade her colleagues of that. I mean, this that does also relate to where we were a while back, which, I mean, in this conversation, which is if no deal is going to be a, a meaningful threat to get these negotiations to bite. We heard yesterday that actually there is at least one issue around which the cabinet feels no deal is a non-starter and will do whatever is needed to stop it. I think that this is part of the argument that what I'm suggesting is, is, is like, on the one hand, we, we have, we can't pass the withdrawal agreement because it's got the backstop in it. Then we have, we can't have no deal because we'd have to impose direct rule on Northern Ireland. Then we have the, the DUP saying that Brexit is very secondary consideration to to the union, which must be preserved at all costs. If, if so many things become constrained by the Northern Irish question, then I think it's quite difficult to see how there isn't going to be a political reaction against that. One thing about the SNP, so they moved in the second round of indicative votes... Their position is they don't want Brexit to happen. If they can't stop it directly, they want a second referendum. 
they then moved to their third favoured position, which is Corn Market 2.0. They were willing to support it because their red line is free movement. So they couldn't support Labour's position as currently articulated because it doesn't allow for free movement. So were, again, I'm not sure it's going to happen, but were some understanding to be achieved between the government and the Labour Party that allows the withdrawal agreement to pass, the SNP won't support it because it won't include, presumably it won't include free movement. And that's a problem because probably a Corbyn government is going to need to be held together by SNP support in Parliament. So again, that's a risk here for the Labour Party in these negotiations, potentially, isn't it, to own a a softer Brexit, but one that is not acceptable to the SNP. And that other bit of the union that may well eventually break apart, that comes a bit closer. It is. I mean, I think that the, the, the Scottish dimension of this poses quite a number of um, problems, I because mean, it poses a problem for Labour in terms of competing in Scotland if it moves away, decisively moves away from any possibility of a second referendum into supporting the withdrawal agreement and the UK leaving the European I mean, just Union. to say, do you think for that reason, as some people have said, that eventually in this discussion over the next few days, Labour will have to try and tack on a confirmatory referendum as part of the quote-unquote agreement? Well, I think that then we back to the question of like how this second referendum can be legitimated. And I've got grave doubts, and I've articulated them before, about how it could be. But if it isn't any chance of going to be, then in some sense, to use that language, I don't like it, the hardest Brexit possible, other than no deal, which is not going to be tolerated being on the ballot paper, I think, by the House of Commons, has got to be on the ballot paper. The minimum... Brexit that can be on the ballot paper versus Remain is the withdrawal agreement plus the political declaration as, as, it, currently as, it, as, it, as, it, as it currently stands. If you end up to appease you know, the, the SNP in this with a, a ballot paper that is common market too, which I have to say, in my view, has got some you know, near gibberish in it as well, at least as it's presently written, versus Remain, I just think... There's no conceivable legitimacy, I mean, for the referendum. Even leaving aside the, the legitimacy problems that a second referendum has has already got, because, you, you know, you're disenfranchising before you've even started, even, you know, the most pragmatically voters. So this is all about passing the withdrawal agreement. That's what May wants to do. And then after that, I think she's willing to sort of take her chances and maybe to leave office. And so the the agreement is, we will pass the withdrawal agreement on the understanding that there will be a confirmatory referendum about passing the withdrawal agreement. Is that not possible? So it basically becomes a another in-out question because it, it accepts that the future relationship cannot be pinned down on the ballot paper. But you can't have within Article 50, you know, to get to the exit, you've got to have passage of the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration, even if you don't do them absolutely simultaneously okay. at the same at the same so time. So that separating out that happened I mean, you can would sep- have to yeah. be brought back together but again for a referendum? I think so, yeah. Oh, great. <laughs> okay, a couple more things. So we didn't know what we were going to talk about today. Maybe people listening can tell. Um, but there are a couple of things, I suppose, I was thinking about yesterday before Theresa May's speech that I wanted to raise. So one is the question, so before we, we got to this new attempt to break the logjam, as she put it, it seemed to be recognised by the government that it was going to be very, very hard to bring the withdrawal agreement and the current political declaration back for a fourth vote, partly because it would lose, but partly because John Burko is really doing everything in his power to prevent it. 
The Conservative MP Richard Drax made a statement in the Commons earlier in the week where he he apologised for having changed his mind on the third vote to support the withdrawal agreement. And he sort of implied, and, and John Burko, in the way that John Burko does, made it clear that he agreed that he'd been unduly pressured and that by bringing, precisely Burko's point, by bringing these votes back, it kind of forces people into these very uncomfortable positions where they have to change their mind. So there's a part of me that thinks, good, one way you can break a logjam is to keep voting three times, 30 times. I'll give an example in a second. Because in the end, it does ramp up the pressure. It's part of the job, I'm afraid. I I have some sympathy with members of parliament in the current information climate having to deal with the 24-hour pressures and abuse and so on. But the idea that you might be put to the test repeatedly and might buckle. So the two things that made me think this, it's probably a bad idea to do this. We watched as a family 12 Angry Men, which is corrupting because it makes you gives you a sense of another way that politics could go. But in that, where the jury moves, but it, it moves because you keep voting and each time you vote, someone shifts and that changes the dynamic. So it is always a different vote. But then also thinking there are many points in history where a logjam has been broken by really ramping up the pressure. So I think one famous example, this is going back a bit, but the 1800 American presidential election where Aaron Burr and Thomas Jefferson on a joint ticket, but they were tied for the number of votes, who would be president, who would be vice president. It really mattered whether you get Jefferson or Burr. It could be a big difference for the future of the American Republic. And it went to the House of Representatives and they had a vote and they were still tied. So they had another vote and they were still tied and they had another vote. And then they had 35 votes. And then on the 36th vote, a few people buckled and abstained. Jefferson became president. I don't think John Burko is right. I see the pressures and I see the strains and the psychological strain. But another view would be there was movement. There was movement on the indicative votes too, which he allowed. You could keep doing both, actually. And you would also have eventually broken the logjam one way or the other. This, I mean, in the end... You know, politics. I feel invo- better. <laughs> in the end, politics involves decision, and um, so long as Parliament hasn't made a decision, it can keep being asked to make a decision. And in this case, I think it's even stronger than in the Jefferson. It's just the same binary choice over and over again. But because we haven't got to the point for various reasons there, where a binary choice is all that there is then we have to keep asking the MPs to vote and vote and vote until one of the options that is actually possible prevails. And Drax, the implication of what he was saying was somehow he was bullied by process into compromising on his principles. That seems to me to be one possible definition of democratic politics. That I mean, maybe not bullied, but that people in the end are constrained by process to compromise on their principles. And not only is that true, but there are certain processes that have been set up about this issue. The first is is that Parliament voted by a six to one majority to hold a referendum. It then voted by a, a substantial majority to invoke Article 50, then voted to pass the Withdrawal Act last year that said that the UK was leaving on the 29th of March with or without a deal. It interjected into that these issues about the meaningful vote that have caused quite a lot of complicated um, constitutional consequences. But the idea that after making all these decisions that one MP's principles then can be asserted, inserted, sorry, into the process 
and that somehow has got some weight beyond the decisions that have already been made and the ongoing authority of the executive to conduct negotiations with the European Union just seems to me to be absurd. So there are a couple of things that someone on the EU side said. I think this was the the version I read, it was anonymous. I'm not sure who said it, but I want to finish with. The problem that we've had all along, and it's weird that British parliamentarians haven't faced up to this because we have, and the phrase they used was, there is no transmission mechanism from the legislature to the executive. This was about the indicative votes. So they can indicate as much as they like. And it's quite a useful phrase, but they cannot transmit their will. It goes the other way they can withdraw their consent, they can bring down the government. If May and Corbyn can't agree, so it goes to the next round of indicative votes, that's still true. I mean, the basic fact of British political life is there is no transmission mechanism from the legislature to the executive of an expression of will. And this would include, among other things, I think the Cooper-Letwin bill that's being rushed through now to prevent no deal. I mean, all of these things transmit a set of instructions to the executive, but they aren't binding. It just doesn't make any constitutional sense what we've got into with these indicative votes and the language that Letwin used about it at one point was to say that the legislature was to become the government. Well, it just simply can't in the constitutional system in which we have here. And it it seems to me that the problem that Parliament has got itself into in this respect all those MPs that have supported the Letwin way of doing things is is that these MPs want to say they have no confidence in the government to conduct the negotiations with the European Union, or to conduct business in some sense, not just negotiations with the European Union, but they are not willing to bring the government down. And that is what Parliament is supposed to do when it has no confidence in the government. It is not supposed to substitute itself for the government. We can't have government so that on that has, basis. And so that sense, I do think we are, regardless of anything else, in a constitutional crisis. Now, there's clearly, you know, lots of political reasons as to why MPs actually don't want to bring down the government, not least because very few of them actually want a general election and both members of the Conservative Party in Parliament and quite a number of Labour MPs. And as you say, the TIG above all. Yeah, don't want a Corbyn government. But doesn't change the fact that we can't carry on proceeding as if the legislature can act as the government. So it's still, I don't want to always say this, but it still must be therefore possible that the constitution asserts itself and the government falls. Because if they genuinely cannot allow, you know, if if as a result of this, actually they do not have any faith that Theresa May will honour whatever she agrees with Corbyn or whatever, then then the government has to fall. But I think that that's the problem is, is that it just seems that the MPs are not committed a not sufficient number of MPs that, are committed well, to that. Isn't that commi- ultimately, you know, I, I know I've always said the choice in the end is you pass the withdrawal agreement or the government will fall and there'll be an election. And that has still seemed to me to be the choice that everyone is shirking, but it's coming closer and closer, that choice. It's coming closer. And they may well pass the withdrawal agreement. Yeah. I mean, May may have done something pretty smart yesterday and, and brought that prospect closer. But if it doesn't happen, it's not. there's not going to be a way out of this with this government limping on I mean in one sense the the easiest way out now is actually for um, the EU to say no to any extension and then there is then a binary choice finally between the withdrawal agreement passing and no deal last week we said that this week we were going to talk about Trump and we are we're going to do an extra episode with Gary Gerstle who is in the United States so can tell us 
what it actually looks like from there. And we'll be putting that out in a few days. We have some bags to sell again. Uh, if you go to our website, talkingpoliticspodcast.com, you can find out how to buy them. It's really easy and they're great. And next week, I imagine we might be talking about Brexit. Do join us for all that. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. I mean, you can see that from the whipping on the... Uh, was it the? I've, I've lost track of certain things. I must admit now, but I think it was the whipping on the, um, the, the. Uh, anyway, so the whipping sometime last week. I'm not even. Gonna... <laughs> that whipping. <laughs>